and that that perfect righteousness spotlessness was given to us freely because of your death and resurrection on the cross and when we sing holy 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 we join in with eternity declaring that you are worthy to be worshipped and admired and sought after in your word we just thank you so much for this morning would you open our hearts now to continue to receive what you have for us this morning in Jesus name Amen have a seat give them a hand thank them for our team um yesterday sarah i don't know how many of you know but sarah who helped lead us in worship this morning she grew up in our youth group she got saved in our youth group and then she married another young man in our youth group and they just had a gender reveal party yesterday and uh they're having a little girl so congratulate them on on that uh me me and one of the other elders were there yesterday and participating and we're like you know it's so crazy how this is a thing like the gender revealing is like like a thing it's not something we did as kids and and we were trying to you know wonder what we thought about it and I brought it full circle and said at least we're celebrating that there's genders so (laughs) at least that's a good thing um only here it's your bible uh raise your hand if you don't have a bible and uh we want to give you one and then um where's Jessica and Colin Jessica and Colin, Colin just proposed to Jessica. I didn't say she said yes yet, but she, she did say yes. I, and we are, we are like, I don't know, maybe Laura knows. Laura and Zach help lead a, a young uh, couples, young married couples uh, Bible study. How many of the couples are pregnant right now? Five out of like eight. Five out of like 15. So one third of the married group is pregnant and they're working on the other two thirds. Yeah. (laughs) So that's good. Um, Hey, backtrack a little bit. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the the team here and um, we are in the gospel of Mark. That's what we're walking through. So turn to chapter five. That's where we're at in this book this morning, chapter five. And I want to welcome you. A couple things I want to make note of uh, so that you are aware. Number one, Uh, is VBS, our Vacation Bible School for Kids, is coming up. If you have kids ages 3 to 12 and they haven't signed up, make sure you download our app. Even if you're not going to go to VBS, you should download the app. It has all our information on there. Devotions are on there. Blogs are on there. Sermons are on there. There's a Bible on there. Uh, There's a place to take notes. There's all kinds of resources on that app for you. So just go into your little app store, download that, uh, and you can sign up your kids for that. Or if you want to volunteer and help, We'd still love to have you help at that event. So you can sign up, uh, like I said, there uh, or on the webpage. There is no youth group for you youth group kids uh, This and for you parents this week. Uh, junior high camp is leaving on Thursday. And so last minute, if you're junior high age and you want to sign up, contact Caleb so that you can go to that. And then um, I think in like one or two weeks, Hannah Hammond, stand up, Hannah, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Here's Hannah. Say hi to Hannah. Hannah's going to the Basque Country with one of our missionaries. She's going to help teach English and help them out. And so you have provided uh, a lot of the funds for her to be able to go on this missions trip. And so if you want to pray for her and uh, shake her hand, give her a hug, know more about the trip, make sure that you please, she'd love to talk with you, right? Super extroverted Hannah Hammond. Uh, Make sure you, okay. You ready? All right. I was able to tackle this to a certain degree in the first service 
and I'm going to attempt to do it this service. The reason I say it that way is because <clears throat> as I started to sit down with chapter 5, there are three major stories all kind of, I think, linked together. And so the goal is to actually cover all three of these stories and a common thread that runs through all of these stories. And so where we're at, if you remember, last week, the, uh, Jesus has been teaching, and he's been, he's been preaching basically parables. And during his whole day of preaching and sharing of these parables, he gets into a boat, and he goes out to sea. And he goes out to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, which is known for sudden violent winds. A, a large storm happens upon this boat. And Jesus happens to be in the hole of the boat sleeping. And the disciples interrupt him of his sleep. And they tell him, you have to awake. Don't you care about us? We're actually dying. We're literally dying. Now, if you remember, Jesus shows his kingmanship, his authority over nature. He stands in the boat uh, and he calms the wind and he calms the violence. Peace is still. The disciples are more afraid at Jesus calming the storm than they are of the storm itself. And they ask a question at the end of chapter 4. And that question is, who is this? Who is this Jesus that can calm the storms? Now, at the point of the story in chapter 5, Jesus has reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Where he was teaching before was much more populous. There were more cities. It was kind of his home base. Uh, there was a place there, obviously, for enough people to come and to gather and to press around Jesus. The crowds are overwhelming him. Jesus goes out into the sea for some respite, some solitude from his teaching, his counseling, his shepherding, his loving, his compassion. Surely he is in hopes to some degree, along with his disciples, to getting to the other side of this sea for some more somber, restful, blissful sleep, but that's not what he gets. When he gets to the other side, instead, he finds himself encountered with this man that is known as the demoniac. How many of you in the last couple years, by segueing into this, have hoped to get to a different side of life? How many of you in the last two years, I've asked this question during the pandemic before, have prayed and asked God, could you just get me out of California? How many of you have asked the Lord to get you to the other side of a trial or a tribulation? How many of us currently are hoping to get to the other side of the crashing of the stock market or, God forbid, the money you've put into Bitcoin? How many of you are asking God to get to the other side in hopes that the other side would be better? As it has been said before, the old saying, the grass is always greener on the other side, and the reason that this is the case is because there's usually more fertilizer over there. <laughs> this is Jesus traveling to the other side. Will he find rest? Rest? No, he won't. Instead, he finds a man in deep need. And this morning, what we're going to see with these three different stories, again, as Mark reads a lot like a comic book, if, if you'll enter into scene one, or if you were to look at it like a 3x5 card, on the 3x5 card we see Jesus encountering this demonic man who's been living amongst the tombs. Upon the conclusion of this man being freed from the demons, and for those of you who know the story, the demons being cast into 2,000 pigs into the sea to their destruction, we then find Jesus in the next scene as he travels back to the more populous side of the lake. On this side of the populous lake, the crowds again find him quite possibly waiting for his return. 
Some probably for worship, many probably for entertainment, others because they need their need met. On this next scene, we will be introduced to a man by the name of Jairus. Jairus is a man who's probably in charge of all of the, the worship in the Jewish synagogue. He is a well-known man. He is probably a Pharisee. He may even be a man of need, or of means, rather. And he comes to Jesus, and his need is, Jesus, if you would come and touch my only daughter, a daughter who's been saved for 12 years, if you would come and just touch this woman, my daughter, this young girl, surely she will be saved and she will live. Upon that, we enter into the next scene where Jesus begins his journey to go heal the daughter. Instead, he's interrupted by a woman who has had a blood flow issue, a uterine issue for 12 years. Same age as the daughter. One has been rejoicing for 12 years with their father. One has been mourning for 12 years because of their suffering. Jesus is interrupted. Then we enter into the last scene. Jesus will raise this girl from the dead. Ultimately, though, I think the common thread within these particular stories, in these particular scenes is Satan's attempt to defile, to deface, and to destroy the image of God in man. We have to recognize a few things before we get into the text. That the idea, the theology, the reality, that there is a spiritual realm that exists among us. That Satan is real, and Satan desires to destroy, to deface, and to defile humanity, to take down the image of God. And in that reality, we must be awakened to the fact that Jesus is in control of it as well. So as we enter into this, let's just take note of a couple ways we tend to deal with in our culture, the demonic or the spiritual realm. In our world, I think we fall into two categories, as C.S. Lewis states. In his book, Screwtape Letters, he basically says that there's two fallacies that humanity falls into in regards to the spiritual realm. One fallacy is to overindulge in it. To actually say everything is demonic, right? You stub your toe, it was a demon's fault. And how many of you as a little kid remember maybe saying to your parent, Satan made me do it. Another fallacy is to ignore it altogether. It doesn't exist. You pay it no mind. You pay it no attention. Now, as we kind of go back a little bit and see how other cultures wrestled through spirituality, the Egyptian world where the Jewish, the Jewish men and women came from, they, they were very superstitious people. The Egyptians, in fact, believed that there were swarms of demons swarming around at any given time and that there was literally a demon for everything. Specifically, if anyone had any kind of ailment or any kind of, uh, of disease, it would have been a demon's fault. So you would have had the demon of deafness, a, a demon of, of blindness. There was a particular demon for that. In today's culture, we see this in some of our hyper-charismatic friends where they're trying to cast demons out of any and every kind. In fact, I came across one story this week uh, of a pastor trying to, to exercise the demon of binge shopping. Amen. <laughs> That's a father here at church on Father's Day without his wife. <laughs> I think they probably carried a little too far. However, we actually see some of this superstition start to creep into the Jewish belief system. The Jews had actual ceremonial cleansing laws that were decreed by God to keep them safe from certain things, but demons weren't necessarily one of them. 
If you look at a lot of the laws the Jews add in regards to their ceremonial cleaning, it was in part because of this belief system that if they touched something that was unclean, they would be made defiled by it and maybe even demon-possessed by it. Some of you remember the argument of, of the should we or should we not eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. The idea being that if one ate meat that was sacrificed to idols, it would be possible that the demon attached to that meat would enter into your body and he would then take control of you. But then in Jesus' world, which is quite interesting, we see this heightenedness of the demonic realm. To a degree we don't see today and to a degree that you just don't see in the Old Testament. Nobody really goes to the Old Testament for their demiology to try to figure out what do demons do and what do they don't do. Most of that is in the New Testament. One must ask the question, why? And the reason for this is quite simple. This is the Messianic era. This is the time where God has foreseen to send his son to crush the head of the serpent. There is a heightened disruption in the spiritual realm now that Christ has come. Because Jesus is showing us that he's king, not just over the natural realm, but also over the spiritual realm. Now, with that said, let us read the first part of this story, and hopefully I'll be able to weave these together for us to have a greater understanding and hopefully a greater heart of worship towards Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning if you're able to as we read from John chapter, John, Mark chapter 5. <clears throat> They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been often bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, entered into the pigs, of the herd numbering about 2,000, and they rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Lord, would you minister to us this morning through this story that is real history, with real power and real implications for us. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. You may be seated. First story, this particular story, illustrates for us the desire that Satan has to deface the image of God in humanity. This is just as true in your life as well. We have to come to the recognition that there is a God who desires to save us. And in order for us to have a deep, I think, understanding and love and appreciation for that salvation, one must know what they are saved from. 
Surely we are saved from ourselves and our own sin, our own depravity, but surely we are saved from the implications of the demonic world. As it has been said, the devil is in the details. There are more details about this particular story than usual in the book of Mark. When we read such details, one must look and, and ask the question, why? And I think we have to do a little bit of study ourselves. I think we have to look and understand what has actually happened in this particular man's life. One definitely has to ask the question, how in the world did this man become so demon-possessed? But there are a few realities in these details one must be familiar with. Number one, this man is defiled from society. Because of the fact that the Jewish law taught that if you touched a dead person, you would be made unclean. For a certain amount of time, you would be made unclean. In verse 2, we're literally told that this man's not only touching the dead, this man is literally living with the dead. You can still go to this particular place at the Sea of Galilee today. A sharp precipice comes down the mountain, where the, uh, the cliff where the pigs fall, just beyond that, about two miles, are a, is a place where these tombs resided. This man, in part, as we look at this reality that he's living among the dead, we must actually see this man is himself, in part, dead already. He is spiritually dead. He is not spiritually alive. One must ask the question, how in the world did he get here? Was it guilt? Was it shame? Has this man been abused in some way? Has he allowed himself to dive into the spiritual realm that he ought not? Has he been numbing himself with drugs or alcohol? How has he come to this place? We don't know. What we do know is that he has been bound, bound so many times that they are unable to bind him anymore. He has a type of superhuman strength. I think the binding is also to show us that this man is more animal than he is human. He is losing the image of God upon him physically and spiritually. We're told he literally was able to take these chains off. The language there is that he rubbed them so violently he was able to basically wear them thin and then break out of them. It is clear to us that this man is out of control and he's out of his mind and he's not sleeping. We know this because in verse 5 it tells us that he did not sleep and he was in the hills screaming and crying day and night. This man had no rest. If that weren't enough, verse 5 tells us that he was continually cutting himself. More self-destruction. Now, we have to ask the question, why in the world is he doing this? Is this a pagan act of worship? Is this an act of self-hate? Does he hate who he is and what he has done? Is this a way for him to try to rid himself of the demons in hopes he maybe could bleed them out? Or is this a failed attempt at ending his suffering by suicide? We're not totally told, but the reality is sure this man is loathing and is being destroyed by the demons that exist in him. We see the power and the humility uh, and the awesomeness of Jesus as he walks onto the scene and this man from the tombs jumps away out of the tombs towards the, the shoreline to run after Jesus. Might, quite possibly thinking these guys are just normal guys and it's an opportunity for him to wreck shop on them. But then he comes to the realization this is Jesus. He bows down at Jesus' feet and then Jesus asks him a question. We see the calmness and the sternness in our Lord's voice. What is your name? I think as we look at this, 
and we know that this man is possessed, another question maybe arises within us in the text. Is he speaking to the man or is he speaking to the demons? I think it's possible that in his sovereignty, he's speaking both to what is humanness that's left in that man and hopes to get that man out of, of his bondage, but he's also definitely showing his authority over the demons. The answer that is given, not a normal answer, not a normal name, legion. Now this name, legion, for those who are reading this, whether it was Roman or whether it was Jew, would have automatically brought them back to the reality of the Roman legion the infantry that existed in the Roman world. Legion was known as an army with roughly 6,000 men in it. An additional 120 cavalry. One asked the question again, theologically, doctrinally, what is being said here? Are they saying that, that this man has 6,000 plus demons in him? We're not told. Maybe it's parabolic to some degree. Maybe it's just a number to show. Either way, what we know is that this man is possessed beyond human comprehension. The number is irrelevant. This man is consumed with evil. He is running about wild. We are told he is naked. He is unkept. He is a mere shell of a person. He quite possibly is covered in cuts, bruises, lacerations, scabs, infectious tissue. And again and again, he keeps trying to cut himself, mutilate himself, and kill himself. This man is completely under the control of the enemy. The Jewish Talmud, if you didn't believe in demon possession, they had four signs in their book of the law to basically call someone crazy. Those four signs, number one, that you would walk about uh, that you would walk about at night. Check. That you would spend the night on a grave. Check. You would tear one's clothing. Check. And you would destroy what one was given. Check. This man had nothing. Whether it was the Talmud or whether it's the text, we know that this man is being abused. All I want you to see at this current moment is that God is trying to protect this man's humanity. Satan is after it. He wants to dehumanize him, much like Jesus was dehumanized on the cross. Enter story two. Let's just leave this one for a moment. Let's go to this little girl, Darius' daughter. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. Jesus was one on side of the lake. We haven't concluded that story, but by way now of the next portion of the story, notice Jesus travels back across the lake. I'm sure to the disciples... Uh, <laughs> happiness there's no storm this time and it says this in verse 21 when he crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying my little daughter is at the point of death come lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live and he went with him Okay, Jesus gets off of the boat again. He comes, the crowd presses in around him. A man comes to him, a Jewish man, who normally should not ever be asking Jesus for any kind of advice. Now, just so we're aware, on the other side of the lake, where the pigs were, where the demons were, that is more of a Gentile area. So pigs would have been okay in that area. Where Jesus now is with this little girl, not so much. Because you know Jews don't like pigs. 
It's not kosher. I know. I know. It's hard to believe. But here they are. And as Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus comes across to the other side of the lake, it was, it's just as odd, just as odd for him to be on the Gentile side. It's just as odd for Jairus to be humbling himself and asking Jesus for help. Take note of a couple things that are very important. Number one, this girl later in the text in chapter 5 will tell us that she's 12 years old. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that this particular man, Jairus' daughter, was his only daughter. It's his only child. Now, I can resonate with this, not because I have an only child, but I have one little girl. I got one princess. Right? Those of you who are dads of little girls, especially for me, I've got one little girl, and I've got three barbarians. And there is a defensiveness that I have with my little girl that I don't have for the other boys, right? Every, I, I think I've shared this with you before, just by, by way of fatherly day tip. Every time I pick up my little girl and we walk to the truck and I go to put her in the truck, I open the door for her. She's only, she's only uh, how old is she? She's seven, right? She's seven. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> she's seven, I'm pretty sure. And every time I open the door for her and I tell her, I tell her, what do you need to know about me opening the door? And she hangs her little head because she knows she's not ready for it yet. And she goes, if I ever date somebody and they don't open the door for me, dump them. <laughs> That's right. This is this little girl for Jarius. It's his only little girl. It's his princess. It's 12 years of joy, 12 years of rocking on daddy's lap, 12 years of hugs, 12 years of I love you, daddy, 12 years of joy, 12 years of bliss. And the father has come and he's humbled himself in desperation. And he's come to Jesus that his daughter would be healed. She has a fever and she's near death. I think it's important for us to see that, that Jairus comes to Jesus desperate, humble, direct, and to the point. I think this is the way all of us should come to Christ. Desperate for salvation, desperate for need, humble, direct and to the point. I need your salvation, Lord. I need your healing. I need your intervention. This man is showing he has faith in Christ. He says, if you touch her, she will live. This harsh event is drawing everyone to Jesus as Savior. So you would think, right, if you remember, the number one term in the Gospel of Mark, the favorite term for the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately. Immediately Jesus does. Immediately this and immediately that. Surely on the heels of hearing of this young girl, this only child, this man's little princess, he's going to surely immediately get from where he is at and he's going to rush to this little girl's bedside. He's going to touch her hands and he's going to heal the fever and she's going to be totally fine. But that's not what happens. Almost in, in direct opposition of immediately. Instead, we jump to verse 21, the third story in the text when Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, verse 21, a great crowd gathered around him and he was beside the sea and then came, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to jump a little further down. That's what happens when I'm getting super excited. It's going to be so good. I know where I'm going. Now that I've made the mistake, we're good. Verse 24, with just as much gusto, he went with him. And then... A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for how long? 12 years. What's interesting, it's the same number as the little girl. Not 12 years of joy, not 12 years of bliss, not 12 years of little princess, but instead a 12-year blood flow quite possibly caused from something inside of the uterus 
12 years of hardship, 12 years of difficulty. And then it doubles down and triples down when it says in verse 20, 26, and she had suffered much under many physicians and she spent all she had. I mean, here is a woman who has suffered for so long that, that, that she has actually been just so you're clear as Satan is trying to deface the demonic man, he is trying to defile this particular woman. This issue of blood flow would have made her socially unacceptable, socially unclean. No dinners for her, no potlucks for her to partake in. Don't invite her to the house. 12 years of isolation, 12 years of a lack of community, 12 years of suffering, not only from her blood flow, but oh, also from the doctors as well. Literally, this, this woman has spent all she has, it tells us in the text. Her life savings is gone. It has disappeared. She has no money left. She doesn't have her health, and she can't even see her own friends and family. Pastorally, I've seen this. This is all in your head. There's really no issue here. There's nothing more we can do for you. I've seen this with people in our church, isolated, alone, called crazy because of whatever illness they may have. And all the while, remember now, Jarius is in the back going, what about my daughter? There's a couple of things I think we need to see here. First of all, Jesus doesn't work on our timetable. He's going to get to the girl. But the other thing we see about this, I think, is the reality that Jesus is interruptible. You can interrupt Jesus at any time, at any moment. Those who work on the staff here at Sierra Bible Church, they know uh, I've got a saying, your door should be open. If you're too busy for people, you're too busy to be in ministry. The doors are open here. Probably shouldn't tell you that because it's getting crazy. Lots of counseling, lots of, of needs, lots of phone calls. Jesus is about people. She's been isolated for 12 years. She spent all she has. And again, you see her faith just like you see Jairus's. If he could just, if I could just reach out and if I could just, if I could just touch Jesus in faith, I'll be made well. So you have three stories, three needs. One pastor actually says of these particular issues, they are three cases of the incurables. We're to read them in such a way, I think, to get to a certain place. Where is the hope? Let's talk about the hope. Right? I kind of left those off to the side just a little bit. But Jesus is the one, as Satan desires to rage against the church, as Satan desires to rage against humanity and deface and defile and destroy it, Jesus has obviously come to give all that back and more so. Look at the first solution, verse 15. Jesus cast the pigs... It cast the demons into the pigs. They're destroyed over into the lake. And then we find ourselves with this demon-possessed man who was once barely shackled, barely clothed, cutting himself. And where is he in verse 15? He is sitting. That's number one. He is clothed. That's number two. And he's in his right mind. That's number three. This is what Christ desires to do for every Christian. For every person that walks into this room, if you are new to the faith or you're wondering, what is Christ all about? What is his goal for me? What is his objective for me? It is this, to clothe you in the righteousness of God, to sit you down in his ever presence that is full of peace and understanding and to make you sober-minded, to give you your brains back. 
This is literally what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, that he purifies our conscience. My wife and I were talking last night and just the reality of how crazy our society is. The terms we use, the definitions we use, the things that we're saying are okay. It, it makes one go, what in the world? Is this real life? Does anyone ever feel that way? Am I the only one thinking clearly? It is absolutely surreal. Peter, who is the one who is basically telling Mark what to write down here, literally tells us in chapter 5, verse 8 of 1 Peter, be sober-minded. Have your wits about you. Be watchful. Why? Because the enemy is like a lion and he's seeking someone to devour. So we need our sober-mindedness to us. And this is what Jesus does, not just for the demonic man, but he does that for us as well. Puts us in the right mind and gives us the clothing of righteousness instead of the clothing of shame and guilt and all of those things that were probably driving this man to kill himself. Take note of a couple other things here. The dying daughter, in verse 23, the man comes and says, literally, I know you can make her well, is the word that's used. In verse 28, the diseased woman he tells her that you would be made well. She asked the same thing. Will you make me well? And Jesus will say in verse 34, your faith has made you well. Why is this important? Because we lose it in the original language. The word that's used there is literally sozo. What does that word mean? It's more than just make me healthy. It's save me. What are these people literally coming for? Not just a healing, but a salvation. And this is ultimately what Jesus wants to give his people. Lord, would you sozo? Would you save me? Would you heal me? Would you make me new? Now, the demonic man, he gets to sit down. That's probably the first for him in a while. He's been ravaging and wandering and running everywhere to and fro for, for who knows how long. Finally, he's sitting and he's at peace and he's clothed. For the dead daughter, what happens with her? Well, let's go to the conclusion. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, this is to the woman that he makes well after touching her with the blood flow, immediately dries up, we're told. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? That's encouraging. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing. And he, he entered, and he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they immediately were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one would know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Now, there's a couple things I want you to see here. Because humanity always has negative reactions to the things of Jesus. I mean, we have to see, like, like, like the opposite of what's happening here. There, there's, there's a contrast. Look at verse 17. I know I'm bouncing around. I'm going to try to weave it all together. Keep with me. Stay with me. You guys with me? Okay. Verse 17, you'll notice, after Jesus heals the demonic man, and 2,000 pigs rush off the edge to their demise, what is the response 
from the people. Leave. Why? That's a lot of money. I, I think I figured it out. I did the math uh, of this. It's roughly, where is it? I've put it in here. Oh, come on. I've got to find it. I found it. 3,200 pounds of bacon lost. <laughs> this is a serious deal. 3,200 pounds of bacon lost. Leave! Jesus, get out of here. This is too much. You're probing too far. I don't care about this person's humanity nearly as much as I care about my wallet book. This is a big financial loss. As one author says, to gain every possession possible in this world and yet be without Christ is to be bankrupt forever. These men are on that side. We want to be filled with our own money. Get out of here. In addition to that, in verse 31, as Jesus is pressed around by, by all of these people, and the, the woman who's been defiled with her unclean blood flow, and he says, who touched me? I feel my power going out from me. The response of the disciples, what are you, crazy, Jesus? There's people pressing in everywhere around you, verse 31. How could you say who touched me? Verse 35, ah, oh, Jarius, don't bother the teacher anymore because your daughter is dead. Jesus, if you would, has practiced malpractice. He should have gone directly to this girl. He is delayed. Now she is dead. But yet we know that Jesus goes into these situations. He heals this woman immediately of her blood flow. He restores 12 years of suffering, 12 years of society being on the fringe, 12 years of pain, 12 years of crying out. Jesus heals her in a moment, and he restores her not only to community, but to blissful relationship with Jesus himself. I want you to take note, if you look at verse 34 and verse 35, Jesus literally calls this woman with a blood flow, daughter. To contrast again with the little girl, both of these women in Jesus' eyes are defined in his eyes as his little princess. What's the language of this? Well, Talitha Kumi says little girl. That's translated little girl. It's actually not as great as a translation as what it, what it means. Little lamb. You're my little lamb. And I reach down and I touch you and I heal you. Both of you are my daughters. Both of you will be in the family of God and I will feed you. I will clothe you and I will put you in the rightness of mind. There's something else though. The word that Jesus states, first of all, to just take note of the Jewish culture. This is just kind of how it is. The Jewish culture in that day when someone died, the more mourning, the more crying, the more weeping the more loved the person was, the more honored the person was. Literally, in some of the Jewish law, it, 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 you know, when we, if we were to get arrested, you know, right? You get arrested, and, and they take you in, and they say, if, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one would be appointed for you. The Jewish people had a similar law. If you cannot afford someone, if you cannot pay someone to weep for you at your mourning, two, at least two will be given to you. This was their culture. This is how they celebrated death. Mourning and weeping. Jesus comes to the house, delayed. They're telling, they're telling Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Nothing can be done. She's dead. And Jesus comes and he sees them wailing and he sees them mourning and he sees all the commotion. He sees all of the, 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 ah! And what does he say? Why the commotion? She's asleep. And they laugh at him because they know she's dead. And then the language that's used here, if you look at verse 40, they laughed at him. And then Jesus put them outside. Better translation, he shoved them out of the room. You get out. Get out of here. 
You don't have faith? You don't want to see the miracle? You don't want to be a part of what I'm going to do? Leave. He shuts the door, grabs her hand, and she's resurrected from death. What's the message Jesus is sending for the believer? For the believer, death is but a nap. This is literally what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. And there's other places in the Gospels where Jesus likens our death to sleep. Chapter 4, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? I hope you do. He says, even so, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. My friends, the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, death is but a nap for the believer. Remember, Jesus was in the boat just a little bit earlier doing the same thing, taking a nap. Right? How many of you love a good nap? I love me a good nap. There's a sweet number in there. I don't know if you've ever tried this out. I have. I have failed at naps and I have succeeded at naps. You know you failed at a nap when you fall asleep. You wake up two hours later and, and you've got that little sleep hangover. But if you can hit that 25, 30 minute mark, you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever done it? A little cat nap. It's just enough sleep that when you wake up, you think you were asleep forever, but you really weren't. And you wake up energized. You wake up a little feeling good. You don't have any sleep hangover. You feel really good about life. This is what Jesus is saying about death for the believer. You will die. Your body will go away. To be, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And you will awaken from what is, seems to be a short little nap. You will be restful. You'll be rejuvenated. Those of you who have had knee replacements, that pain will be gone. Those of you who have back aches, that pain will be gone. Those of you who are losing your teeth, you'll have them back. <laughs> Jesus restores all that is lost in life. Let me ask a couple questions as we begin to segue a little bit further into the text. On, on the side of the negative reactions. What places would maybe you would say to Jesus, leave me alone? He has meddled too much in the finances of these Gentile pig owners. Where would you tell Jesus, maybe you should just kind of back out of this area a little bit? Or maybe you're like these men at the end of the story, don't bother the king anymore. Where have you stopped praying for loved ones? Where have you doubted that Jesus is even listening anymore? This is an encouragement to continue to petition to the Lord, to continue to go to him as king. And my friends, can we just take note in the story up to this point that when you come to Jesus, you always get more than you bargain for? I mean, Jairus came. He just wanted a fever to be healed. Instead, he got a resurrection. Lord, could you just heal this little deal? And then he gets inside of the room, and then he revamps everything. Is that happened to anyone in the room? Lord, I just would like a little change here. And then he blows up everything. The woman, she just wanted to touch and run. She didn't want to be seen. In part, she may have felt that if she touched Jesus because she was unclean, people would start to think that Jesus was unclean. Because for an unclean person to touch a clean person would make the clean person unclean. And so she wants to touch just the hem of his clothing, but that's not what she gets. Instead, she has to fully confess. Or the reality is one pastor says, if you go to Jesus, he may ask of you more than you originally planned to give. But he always gives to you infinitely more than you dared ask. So we've got three stories. Satan's attempt to 
deface, to defile, to destroy. His game plan is the same for you and I today. He wants to take away the image of God in you. He wants to destroy the humanity in you. And he wants you to not see humanity in other sinners. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is to dehumanize our opponents. Regardless of their policies or their beliefs, they're humans. Jesus sees that, and he sees the image of God upon them, and he desires to see them saved. Which leads me to the inevitable conclusion for all of mankind. It's in the text. The inevitable conclusion for all of us, the inevitable conclusion for all of these men and all of these women in this text. What is it? We'll look at verse 16. You're going to see, verse 6, I'm sorry, you're going to see the theme. The demoniac comes to Jesus, and he what? falls down. Go to verse 22. Jairus, the ruler, comes to Jesus and he falls down. Verse 33, the woman comes before Jesus and she what? Falls down. All three of these individuals and all three of these stories all have no choice. The demoniac probably isn't coming in a place of worship, but a place of recognizing authority which shows us this deep reality that demons have a better theology of Christ than even sometimes we as disciples do. Remember the end of chapter 4? Who is this? It takes the demoniac in chapter 5 to answer the question. You are the son of God, the most high. Don't torment me. Language, we know our destruction and doom is coming. The eternal destruction and doom. Please don't allow this to be the time of our destruction and doom. The demons recognize that that Jesus has authority and that Jesus has come to destroy the authority of the devil and that eventually that authority will be done away with completely. And the demons, what they're doing in this moment through this man, they're begging that that moment is not nigh. They bow. The Roman soldier, the religious zealot, the guy who probably should have it all together, the last man who should bow down, he falls at the feet of Jesus as well, as does this defiled woman. A well-known man, an unknown woman, and a demonic man. What do they have in common? They're all in desperate need of Jesus. They're all on the same playing field. They all need sozo. They all need healing. They all fall. And I'm sure most of you will remember the declaration at the end of the age. All will bow down. Every knee will bow It says in Philippians, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's the inevitable conclusion for all of mankind. But there's more. There's a fourth falling down. You see it in the the, the characters. And if you're you're with me at all, you might be like, what's the fourth falling down? There's 2,000 pigs that fall. What is happening here? Oh, this is the part where the Bible gets so, so full of illumination and becomes so radical and so, so just mind-blowing when you start to realize what is happening here. I, I could have spent another two or three weeks studying what I'm about to tell you today, and I just get to give you a little, a little toe-tap of it. Are you ready? Are you buckled in? Remember the 6,000 legion associated with the Roman army? Well, with a little bit more study, you start to realize there's actually another, another legion in the Roman army. It's known as the 10th Roman Legion. Many symbols represented the 10th Roman Legion, but do you know how many Roman soldiers were in the 10th Roman Legion? 2,000. One of their symbols 
was a bore. In addition to that, as you start to read a little bit more into Jewish culture and Jewish history, Roman soldiers were known as pigs to the Jews. Literally, one of the sayings that the Jews would state in regards to Jewish soldiers, you are what you eat. Since the Roman soldiers ate pigs, they called them pigs. They said they ravaged like pigs, that they were pigs. What is the revolutionary undertone Jesus is explaining to the people at this time, to the readers of Rome, to the Jewish readers, all who would have been able to make these connections while reading the text themselves? That if Jesus wanted to overthrow the Roman political party, the king of that day, he was more than able to. There's more. Come on, you remember now the disciples were in the, the sea a storm comes. They think they're going to die. They ask Jesus if he actually cares. He does care. They eventually get to the other side and they're saved. Does this remind you of anything else as they then get on the other side and they're in safety? The pigs then are cast in the ocean and they die. One has to look at the connections as we saw with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee in the storm, all of the connections with Jonah. You have to now see the connections with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's soldiers. You remember Moses comes to the sea they're about to go into the middle. The people start to ask, surely you've brought us here to die. No different than what the disciples asked Jesus on the sea. You're going to kill us. You're going to murder us. Thanks, Moses. You're a great leader. The sea opens up. They go in. They get to the other side. The soldiers with all of their weapons, thousands of them, and their cavalry swallowed in the ocean to their death and demise. While all of God's people go to freedom. Do you see it? The disciples are like the people of Pharaoh. So are we. Lord, will you save us? He's promising to get us to the other side and he's promising to throw our enemy into the sea, but it's not a political, uh, political enemy that we have. Caesar is not our enemy. The president is not our enemy. The D Democratic or Republican Party is not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And Christ has come to throw those pigs into the ocean that you can finally live free, morally, not under the oppression of a false leader, but a better king. Jesus is connecting himself with Moses. He's the better Jonah. He's the better Moses. He's the king of kings. He is the one who brings us freedom. He's fulfilling all that is in the Old Testament to a degree which we could never think or imagine. We do not need freedom from our nation or freedom from society. We need freedom from the condemnation of sin, hell, and death. We see something else four different times in the text. In verse 10 through 11, the demons beg Jesus for mercy. In verse 17, the people beg Jesus to leave. In verse 18, the once-possessed man begs that he can stay with Jesus. And then later we will see the religious man begs Jesus to heal his daughter. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And you and I need to go to the Lord in humility and say, Lord, would you save me? I would rather beg to stay with Jesus than to beg him to leave me. And this demonic man, after he's healed and he's put into his right mind, he runs to the boat and he goes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I beg you, would you let me be with you? Would you let me stay with you? 
And then Jesus says the most peculiar thing. It's peculiar because it's not found anywhere else in Mark except for here. Go and tell your friends. Everywhere else he says, don't share yet because you don't get it. Don't share yet because you don't understand it. But in this one place, he takes the demonic man and he turns him into the first missionary in the gospel of Mark. You, you who understand who I am, you who understand my forgiveness, my compassion, my mercy, my grace, you, you go and you share with your friends. It's another way of Jesus saying, you don't need to come with me because I'm going to go with you. And likewise, Jesus goes with us to restore that which Satan wants to defile, to deface, and to destroy. Jesus will restore all and more. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you desire to heal us from an enemy that hates us. We know, Lord, that the enemy desires to lie to us. As Revelation says, that you uh, have labeled the enemy as a liar, an accuser of the brethren. Lord, we thank you that you've come and swooped into this life and you've crushed the enemy's head and you've restored those lies with your truths. That we are sons and we are daughters, that we are clothed in righteousness, that we are sober-minded And Lord, we are in you, and you desire to feed us well. And I pray that your word has done that for us this morning. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Will you guys stand with us as we sing this last worship song, just declaring that he's paid our debt and he's risen us from the grave.